G'day humans, welcome to Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and I'm going to level with you. I am. I'm going to level with you right now. I'm going to come clean. I'm going to pull back the curtain. I'm going to fess up. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, there's nothing uncomfortable about this episode. Uh, well, maybe you'll find something uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe something will make you uncomfortable. I don't know. Do you have an aversion to comedians? Do you have a, an aversion to hilarity? Do you have an aversion to chuckles? To yuck yucks? If you do, you'll hate this episode. This is an episode with a comedian who uh, we don't talk about anything uh, controversial or uncomfortable. He's just a funny guy, and I like him. Uh, Mike Kaplan, have you seen The Tonight Show? You ever heard of The Tonight Show? He's been on it. You ever heard of uh, Dave Letterman? He's been on Dave's show. You ever heard of uh, Conan O'Brien? He's been on that one too. You ever heard of Late Night with Seth Meyers? Me neither. It's actually good. Seth's good. Seth's funny. He's got good writers. Well, you know. So Mike's been on that one as well. He's done his own half-hour Comedy Central Presents specials. He's done his own Amazon one-hour special called Small, Dork, and Handsome. Get it? Because normally it would be be tall, dark, and handsome, but he's small, dork. And that's the kind of that's the kind of humour you can expect from Mike in the show today. He was on Last Comic Standing and also America's Got Talent. On Last Comic Standing, he was a finalist, and his album Vegan Mind, Mind Meld, uh, he's, a, he's a vegan, was uh, one of the top ten comedy albums on iTunes. And his newest album, AKA, number one, number one on iTunes comedy albums. So without further ado, ladies and gentle humans, I give you Mike Kaplan. I'm happy here. to do as you wish. I'm fine. Why don't you, you be why don't at. you turn it off just in case we get a better audio where, uh, through yeah. less bandwidth being taken up by unnecessary video data? You got uh, it. Or data. You can say data. I can say data for you if you want. I I'm fine with either or either. <laughs> <laughs> you say either. I say data. Yeah. How's that for a gag? You're a comic. You know? You're a comic. <laughs> How was, it? How was you, that? It was a good gag. And mm-hmm. in fact, uh, a buddy of mine, Micah Sherman, he and I used to, and still sometimes do, but mostly in the past, uh, wrote comedy songs together. Oh. And uh, one of our songs was called uh, We're Different. And uh, I think the first line of it was, Micah is tall and I don't suffer from depression. <laughs> so... <laughs> It went on as you'd imagine. Right. Excellent. So uh, I think and would you, what I'm saying yeah. is your joke was as good as Almost. my joke. So I feel like we are, we're in this together. Mountain climbers who can. this together. Yeah, yeah I, think I so. love it. Yes. Uh, I, I always feel like uh, whenever a comedy duo does a, uh, a, a witty ditty, then mm-hmm. uh, you know that you're in for a good time. You know that some <laughs> madcap tomfoolery will be on the cards, Mike. Yes, that's right. Uh, were they, was it whimsical, would you say? Oh, it was absolutely whimsical. <laughs> was it wacky? Uh, I think some might call it wacky. I, I think uh-huh. I think there was a spectrum from, I mean, I don't know if, I don't think there's like a, a mutual exclusivity between wackiness and whimsicality. No, but, you can have both. Yeah, I'm not yeah, going to be I precious think, about it. Yeah, I think, I think it had a little bit of both. Have you ever done prop comedy, Mike Kaplan? Uh, now, now we're getting into a fun... Uh, this is sincerely a fun thing to consider for me for this reason. Mm. I understand what you mean by prop comedy. And yet, also, I feel like the definition of prop and or prop comedy... Uh, it really depends on your definitions. I went to school for linguistics. I was oh. sharing with someone earlier today. Hard for you to imagine. This is the earliest in the day. It's morning for you. But That's here true. in the United States, I was on another podcast earlier today. And uh, perhaps uh, for that reason, uh, it came up then and it's coming up again now. But I think it would have anyway. Okay. Uh, that I took a class in college called semantics. And I recently revisited 
uh, a paper I wrote for it because my girlfriend and I are moving. So we're going through all our belongings. And I found mm. a paper that I wrote in the semantics class about the definition of the word chair. Chair. Uh the the paper was called chair and chair alike and i wasn't mm-hmm. a comedian yet so wow uh, but you but people could guess uh, that you would be on the basis it, of that title i think that was my origin story i have many origin stories but mm. uh the point is that even defining a word a word or a concept as simple as chair that many people would be like yes i know a chair when i see one uh, but what if it's a very short stool or what if it's a very uh, right. thin bench? And right. what about a beanbag chair? What definition captures them all? And this is all to say, like, what is pro- like, it, of course, I assume, classically speaking, the microphone is not a prop, though it is no. an object that a comedian holds. Is no. a guitar a prop? I think that musical comedy and prop comedy uh, operate, you know, similarly, but no. many would say that a guitar is not a prop. No, a guitar is not a prop because the guitar has a, an, uh, an uh, like an external purpose beyond the the guitar being a gag, right? The guitar okay. is creating the music and then the music is the gag, whereas when you have a watermelon uh, drop on somebody's head, then the watermelon itself is the gag. Okay, well then I would say that mostly I don't do prop comedy. However, and wait, what about a comedian's notebook? That can't be, that's not a prop. No, no. Okay, okay. I would say that a prop has to be in some respect wacky. Mm. Well, you know then, what I mean? Because like a, that, a stool yeah. is not a prop either. But uh, some, some comedians will use it as a prop in a wacky way, and I think then it becomes one. Then it that, would. But now this is yeah. the cement, cementition. So the exactly. cementition coming out in you. But it, is that what, a, what a, is a person who studies <laughs> semantics called? Uh, I a think I like, uh, semiotics is slightly different, but, yes, uh, no, that's not yeah, right. I like semantician. I think maybe semanticist as well. Mm, semanticist uh, is good. Isn't it semantic? Sem- you know, the, so semiotics and semantics, I've never actually noticed that those are two different words and things in mm. my brain. That's the same thing. Here's a great, uh, here's a great semiotic conundrum for you, Mike Kaplan. Yes. Uh, have you heard about the debate amongst... Uh, uh, semioticians about how, if at all, to mark nuclear waste dumps in case human civilization gets wiped out and re-evolves with no understanding of nuclear energy or power. Uh, I'll say uh, on a binary yes, no answer. My answer is no, I have not heard about this, but I'm excited now to know that it is a topic of discussion. So it's a topic of discussion because here's the thing. If we all wipe ourselves out, uh, you know, we go back to, yeah, there have been many occasions on which there have been civilizations, the ancient mm-hmm. Egyptians and so on, who have, and we've gone back dramatically. Uh, the Arab world, you know, they invented mathematics and then they, they receded. Well, what if we have a climate catastrophe or a nuclear winter or, you know, an AI uh, Armageddon, and then uh, we're, we're all back to being peasants just farming and whatever, or maybe we go all the way back to being some other primates and uh, eventually Amoebas we evolve. even, yeah. <laughs> we evolve into other civilizations, but we haven't discovered the periodic table of the elements and we don't really know what we're doing and we're wandering around and there are these... Uh, you know, holes in the ground that are full of radioactive material encased in cement. Well, a curious uh, person might want to get inside that cement and see what's going on. So today's people, and this thing lasts for, you know, tens of thousands of years. It remains toxic. So, you know, over those spans of time, uh, who knows? Anything could happen. And then uh, the question is, how these, these people can no longer write or read any of the lost languages, right? They don't have yes. their Rosetta Stone for any of this mm-hmm. stuff. So everything from the past is gibberish to them as they stand astride the ruins of uh, an ancient civilization. If you put up big, like, warning signs, big red Xs or things that you imagine even a chimpanzee would understand <laughs> to be a warning, <laughs> right, then any good, curious homo sapien is going to regard that as being about as credible as the warning signs on the pyramids saying don't open the pharaoh's sarcophagus because the pharaoh's spirit will come out and kill you. They'll just oh, go, sure. ho-ho, these silly old civilizations had these cute customs. Now I'm going to drill open the nuclear casing anyway and contaminate my entire city. So uh, what do you put up? Uh, this is a fantastic question 
for, I, I love it's fascinating in for many reasons. I'll try to get to as many of them as I can. First, the people today who are concerned about these people, hypothetical people, creatures of the future, like if only that care was as universal, if it was more universal, then we wouldn't even need, it'd be like a gift of the Magi, but good, you know, like, oh, I got you a gift of a thing that you can't read, but you don't have to read it because we didn't nuclearly <laughs> destroy the world. Um, yeah, but, oh, that's true. You could, uh, me- you're saying you could also <laughs> not bury toxic nuclear waste by oh, not that producing it in the first place. That would be that'd be one option for sure. Uh, and I guess uh, even in a world right now where we have, you know, where nuclear power is it, it exists and uh, and there is nuclear waste. Like, I think that in some ways, I mean, this is a nice I studied philosophy as well as linguistics. So this is really and you really uh, well, got my down. <laughs> I know a few things about <laughs> words and thoughts is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. And what I mean is to say that. The, the question of like, oh, wow, imagine people who aren't like us that we, I mean, in some ways, literally can't, we, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know. Uh, there are so many possibilities. So it's kind of just, uh, there's not necessarily, I mean, I understand people are thinking about it practically, but really it's a fun philosophical exercise to be like, what if you had, to? I mean, we're sending out, I'm sure that some people are like sending out radio signals into space to be like, sure. it's just like, how do you get, how do you get aliens to understand math? And that, but now at least with, with that kind of imagination, it's like, what about, oh, the most intelligent beings, they won't speak our language, but surely they'll have the, the, the physics or the mechanics of numbers or, you know, some acoustics. What, like, you know, maybe they have different senses than us completely. But uh, all this is to say, I mean, one time the Dalai Lama, pre-problematicity, uh, <laughs> I, and I think I think he still got more wins than losses in his column in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, but a you're just of, a semantician and a philosopher. <laughs> so what would you know about uh, sucking Absol- little boys? Absolutely. What would I know? But I know that I like this thing that he said once when he was asked a question. He was like basically paraphrasing. I'll paraphrase him. He didn't paraphrase it. He said it exactly, whatever it was. He said, that's a good question. The answer is simple. I don't know. However, I'll add to that. I don't know. Is this Mike I speaking can, now, or is this the? Dalai this is me. Speaking? Yes, this is this okay. is me now. You jumped this back is me. in. Yeah, and thank, pushed, I think pushed you, him out of the way. You duly uh, acknowledged and assessed correctly uh, where the quotes ended. Um, I will offer to you that I never confuse semiotics and semantics for this reason is one, I took a class in semantics and I actually several, I've never taken a class in semiotics. Semiotics is the one part of linguistics or the one thing that's related to linguistics. The, the topic of which I have a master's degree in the one, it's the one area of it that I, whenever I hear about it, whenever I read about it, whenever I look it up and I'm like, I, okay, today's going to be the day I never retain what it is beyond, uh, signs, right? Symbols, signals, signs. That's what it is. But that is what it is. Yeah. And hopefully to you then to know that, I mean, semantics can be, but needn't be relating to physical, visible signs. Like you can have a discussion of semantics with uh, people who are illiterate, uh, but people who are intelligent. Uh, It doesn't have to have anything, you know, like there's language. There's some people that just speak language without writing it. Whereas I just have to interrupt you because I've come across some, there's some incredible news that's just coming across the transom. Oh, Oh, yes, please. Uh, Which is that I've just looked up in the Encyclopedia Britannica, semantics and uh, semiotics uh, so uh, semant- semiotics it started with semiotics as you say study of signs semiotics the study of signs and sign using behavior that's uh, yes. that's how the encyclopedia britannica introduces it and then their entry for semantics semantics and then the subtitle says study of meaning then it says semantics also called semiotics Oof. Yeah, I I wouldn't. I would stop reading before that part. That is, <laughs> they it says semantics, also called semiotics, the, the philosophical and scientific study of meaning in natural and artificial languages. 
yeah, I think I definitely think of semantics as the study of meaning. And I think that that description right there is the study of meaninglessness. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so, yeah, right. It seems like there's linguistic, so linguistic meaning is semantics. Yes. And then semiotics would include the meanings of things like a red traffic light or a skull and crossbones. Is that right? Absolutely. I think that's 100% correct. In some ways, it's sort of like the way that, do you know, I learned recently, uh, a turtle and a tortoise are not mutually exclusive. My understanding is that turtle is the broad category, which includes tortoises and then turtles. We don't have another word for it. Like the way that the oh. day is broken down into day and night, or sometimes gay is, oh, what, what, what kind of people are gay? Well, there's lesbians and gays, you know? There's, I see. There's, so there's, no... a, there's a, an umbrella term that is also a subset of the umbrella. Exactly. And so mm. I think perhaps based on the definition that we just saw, uh, that you just saw and read, mm. uh, perhaps that it's you are now semant- suspicious I might just be making up. And no, no, no. no. I believe you. I'm very trusting. Okay. I would say that it seems that perhaps semiotics is the broad category, which can be divided into semantics and semiotics. And also semiotics as, yes. a, as an, um, um, a, uh, a synonym for semantics. Uh, yeah, 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 I don't. Yeah, so it could be a sem- semiotics broken down into semiotics and semiotics, but I I prefer using the word semantics for at least one of them. You know, as as someone who's interested in num- numbers as well as uh, words, I wonder what the number is of people who tuned out while you were talking about <laughs> semantics and semiotics. Uh, well, interesting. If, if anyone tuned out, let us know uh, if you're <laughs> back a, in now. Give us a call yeah. and uh, tell us uh, <laughs> tell us uh, how long you went for. You got? A, do you have a new uh, stand-up special? Thank you for asking. I have in the past couple months two new stand-up projects. Two. One one of which is a special that is on the comedy app Drybar. There's a website drybarcomedy.com. This is recorded... getting even more complicated with words. <laughs> I don't know, this is another word that you're teaching me now. I feel you're like I'm in right. school, Mike. <laughs> Drybar comedy. Okay. Dry... Well, I'll, de- I'll describe briefly. Mm. So Drybar is an organization okay. and that has this platform. They, I recorded the special in Utah where they are based. Utah, uh, home of not exclusively, but a large uh, portion of uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right, what many hence call- Drybar. Exactly. That they, is- they, don't, they don't drink. They don't care to drink. They don't care for your alcohol at all. That. That's 100% correct. And mm. beyond that, uh, these specials are the, – there's many dry bar specials over the past many years that have been created. And uh, they are clean in a way that uh, like go even beyond uh, like the, the rules yeah. – Mike, you, I'm not sure you're doing a great job at selling this. Uh, you know, okay. first first offer we start with. Oh, you're going to love this. There's no alcohol. Secondly, it's recorded by and for the Mormon community. No, no, no. And no, thirdly, no, no, no. There are, there's no lewd humor whatsoever. You can this... take your grandma to this and your great grandma and your two year old child. Don't worry, this I'm not is... going to say anything. <laughs> come and come to drybar.com. Now, does drybar have anything to do? with creating the semiotics for nuclear waste dumps, because some of those are out in the West? Uh, great question. I th- uh, the answer is a simple, I don't know. But I will say, <laughs> the positive flip side... And to, is I this feel Mike like... talking now or the Dalai Lama? <laughs> this, is, this is me again, Mike, Mike Kaplan here, uh, reporting live to you from uh, this conversation, wherein mm-hmm. I will say everything that you said is true. You can share this, set, this comedy with your grandmother. You can share this comedy wow. with a two-year-old. And wow. this comedy is for everyone for anyone as you know of course uh there is i would I, I would say there's no comedy no music no art of any kind that is literally for every person for mm. every human being to enjoy but i do feel here's here's how i made this special mm-hmm. is knowing that i was uh that it would need to meet these parameters i listened back to uh the five comedy albums that i had produced up until that point and i I went through and found like an hour of comedy that 
I had written that I'm like, I think this will be great for this audience, for any audience. So I didn't specifically, you know, tone things down or Mm. write to this purpose. But I'm like, over the course of years, some of the jokes that I write just happen to be fine. And so what you're telling us is not only do we get to enjoy uh, no alcohol, a Mormon (laughs) crowd, uh, but we also, but also it's not new. So we get to hear our favorite or maybe not favorite parts of old material recycled uh, in this Uh, not new way. I, I love it. I'll tell you this. Number one, a hundred percent. If you are already a fan of mine and mm. have listened to every comedy album and special that I've put out from uh, 2010 when my first one came out until mm. this very day, then you are absolutely right that most of this material will include jokes that you've heard of. But let me pitch this to you. We call Number- ourselves yeah. completists, Mike. We call ourselves <laughs> capletists. We call ourselves Ooh. Mike capletists. I like See, that a your lot. Your name is Kaplan, yeah. and so oh, we, you... we say. Capletists. One hundred percent. I see and like what you're doing. Complete and Mike. Complete. <laughs> complete. Com- Capletists. That's what we when we meet of a Thursday evening. Uh, we that's what we call ourselves. I I love on it the, very much. On the church uh, basement door. I appreciate the synagogue. I would hope, uh, but also <laughs> fine for you to meet wherever you wish. Um, here's the thing. I would say for the the very limited set of capletists that you're talking about, there mm. will be in this special at least two moments that have never before been seen. Do in they involve my... props? They do not involve props, but mm. I will tell you one that's pretty fun is a discovery I made because I was going through and uh, amassing the greatest, cleanest hits of my already produced work. I found... Because some of them would come from, some of the jokes were from 2010. Some of them were from 2020. Mm. And so I was able to make connections between jokes that previously weren't even told, you know, in the same uh, decade almost. So that was fun. Mm. And uh, so that is number one. Number two, there are people I know who have listened to most of my comedy, uh, including, for example, my mother. My mother has listened to every <laughs> bit of every comedy album that I've produced. Mm. And when she watched this dry bar special, she loved it. She wow. uh, and would so you say she, would you say she cackled like a mad woman? I I honestly would say that she did cackle like a glad woman. That is what I would say. A glad woman. That's nice. And, and so yes. And so when you when you know that your mother is going to be listening to your set, does that influence what you say? A wonderful like, question. Do you ever did you have a whole like fuck my mama show that you had <laughs> to not do because you're like, "Oh, you know what? She's going to hear it." I have uh, several answers to this question. Number one is when I, like, my mom is not watching most of my shows. Most of the shows that I do in preparation to record an album or a special, she is not at. Most of the, when I'm writing my comedy. all the fuck the mama material goes in the live shows before the special. There is one track of a special that I recorded uh, in 2013 called Small, Dork, and Handsome. There's one track. uh, It's also an audio album. And uh, for the capletist out there, there is a bonus track on the audio album that is not a part of the video special. So if you have only watched but not listened, there is one track for you. Mm, This is our topic for next Thursday night. (laughs) So... uh, in that hour, there is a story I tell about playing Trivial Pursuit with my grandmother, and there there was a, a Trivial Pursuit question about penises. And in that in that track, in that show, I discuss it, I share that story, and I entitled the track something something, and don't listen to this one, Grandma, and. <laughs> Right. And she she can choose if she wants to or not. This is all to say, here, here's a funny thing is, I don't think my grandmother would mind at all. My grandmother used to send me dirty jokes, like email forwards. Really? Uh, she, oh, 100%. Your grandma, did she ever send you a dick pic? She did not. Uh, she was not that tech savvy, but 
she surely also, did she was send not me... that that dick having i guess that's correct where as would well. she get it where would she no. get such a thing she can't just <laughs> point the camera down although now i'm being transphobic because maybe she could have pointed the camera down maybe she was maybe she was a lady who also had those appendages it's possible as far as i know uh thank you for that thoroughness and as far mm-hmm. as i know my grandmother was a cisgender woman so she and her her husband had died many years earlier she did have a boyfriend or two but hardly as far right, as i know she didn't she might have, have just access. passed really well she might have just passed really well as a You're- as a cis woman you're right. I mean, we have to, for the information that happened before we were born, like, I'm told that I was birthed by my mother, and I'm told that she was birthed by her mother, the grandmother yeah, but she in question. Would, I mean, your mother wouldn't know. She was a baby. That, that's right. And now this very grandmother uh, did die uh, three years ago at the age of 91, so we cannot no. ask her. And also, she could lie. So She could. Also, could, if you exhumed a three-year-old body, would you be able to tell if it had had a penis? Uh, oh, I, I don't know the answer to that. It's an interesting question. I'll bet there are like, aren't there, aren't women's hips different? Aren't they, isn't there like a, isn't there a baby bearing hole that women have in their, uh, musculature, in their skeletal body that that men don't have? I'm no expert, but I do understand. Sounds like you need to channel the Dalai Lama here and uh, say, I I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. So this is all to say I do have now an hour of comedy in the works about my grandmother who died. And now sort of ever since she died, I've been talking to my mother more because she died right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I've been talking to my mom pretty much every day, at least checking in, uh, sometimes talking for hours, sometimes, you know, when before my grandmother and mother would talk every day. Uh, But now that the world experienced this grief, this loss, and then my mother at the same time living alone, uh, her mother deceased. I, I've now been getting to know my mom a lot more and developing a lot more material about my mother, most of which I'm happy to say I share with her. I'm like, Mom, you said this thing, and I'm going to tell people about it. And she'll be like, by all means, please do. Sometimes she forgets that she said it and laugh and cackles like a glad woman again at the very thing. <laughs> Does Though, she? I will say that there are some Every once in a while, there are some jokes, some stories, some things about my mother that if she were in the audience, I'm like, mm. maybe maybe these will be for a future album, you know, decades later, because I certainly I don't want to hurt my mother's feelings, though. Also, here's a story. Yes, something coming in. I've got something coming across the transom here. I've got my my transom is up and look, this is comes from the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. A trusted yes. source, would you say? Uh, yeah, I like, I like the Smithsonian. I would say the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History would be one of the most trusted sources for scientific information yeah. in the world. Yeah. Uh, males tend to have larger, more robust bones and joint surfaces and more bone development at muscle attachment sites. The pelvis is the best sex-related skeletal indicator because of distinct features adapted for childbearing. The skull also has features that can indicate sex, though slightly less reliably. So yes, if we exhumed your dead grandmother and examined her pelvis, you would probably establish whether or not she had been a cisgendered or transgendered female with or without a penis. Uh, I'm very glad to have this information. That sounds sounds val sounds valuable. If you do this, yeah. here's another oh, yeah. one. This is from the uh, National Institutes of Something or Other NCBI.LNLM.NIH.gov. What you're looking for is that the male pelvis is taller and narrower, and the cup of the acetabulum is oriented more laterally in the male. So when you dig up your dead grandma. You want to find the acetabulum and see if it's oriented laterally or not. Uh, I I thank you. I'm glad to ha- that we're recording this so that I don't have to write it all down right now. But it's all I, here. It, you oh, could probably get it. Chat GPT to assist you if you if you don't. You know, they Chat GPT could probably listen to this, take bullet points of the important information, and then give you a little printout to take with you to the cemetery. Uh, I appreciate it. I I am not on the ChatGPT bandwagon as yet, but I do acknowledge and appreciate that there is some good that can come 
of it. Well, yeah, otherwise you'd be stumbling around the cemetery in the dark with a shovel not knowing what you're doing. <laughs> it, uh, what do you make of all the concern that they've got about the chat GPT and the artificial intelligence, Mike Kaplan? It's uh, everyone, everyone's freaking out. Yeah, I just read, uh, do you know the comedian, my friend, Baratunde Thurston? Yes, I, don't, I didn't know that his first name was my friend, but I know a gentleman named Baratunde Thurston. Oh, yes, he is. That is uh, an assignation that I give him, as he is my friend. Okay. Um, he writes for uh, a new, I believe it's a news organization called Puck. And oh. uh, are you familiar with Not Puck? at all familiar with Puck, but Baratunde is very funny and a uh, lovely, lovely gentleman. All right. He has his most recent dispatch this very week uh, is entitled Tim Scott's Audience of One and The Case for Unplugging AI. And in that second, uh, in that latter portion, I will, I will read something briefly that he, here, I trust Baratunde even more mm. than I trust the Smithsonian, I'll say. Uh, <laughs> okay. he, right. he is a, a, an educated, intelligent, like, beautiful, brained yeah. man. Not like those dum-dums at the Smithsonian. I mean, I don't know anyone at the Smithsonian, so my, I, I say nothing of them, but I know and trust uh, Baratunde. And so I am, uh, looking at, let's say there's, he, he talks about Tristan Harris. It's coming across. I just, uh, it's, it's one of those annoying names that for some reason the person insists on mispronouncing themselves. Oh, but I just happen please. to know that Tristan Harris is a Tristan. Yes. Ah, thank you for and sharing. that's a true statement of fact. I've only seen it written in this very article. Uh, so there are uh, there is a presentation apparently that Tristan and another person whose name I uh, uh, is spelled A Z A and I won't uh, deign to try oh. to pronounce. But apparently, uh, I'm reading here now from Baritone Day. A large language model can be trained not just on English, but also on numbers, code, music, and logic. In one example, Tristan and AZA, showed how a model was given access to a camera pointed inside a room and also to the room's Wi-Fi radio signal. Engineers then trained the system to correlate the Wi-Fi signal with the 3D rendering of the people in that same space. They, then they ran a test without turning on the camera and discovered the model was able to use the Wi-Fi signal alone to create a 3D image of people in the room. In effect, the model turned a Wi-Fi router into a camera with LiDAR. Combine this with the ability of AI chatbots to help anyone identify and exploit insecure code, and the number of people who can turn your router into a surveillance camera has increased significantly. So Yikes. that's all I can say about that. Yeah. So that's one one reasonable person's uh, offering of why it you know why there are reasons to potentially yeah. be concerned about well, the implications. I don't know anything about this A Z A. And yes, I just <laughs> did go. I I did go there and I said A Z A. Yes. But I do know Baratunde, and I also know Tristan. Not personally though. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Tristan is a, an ethicist. He used to work at one of the big tech companies, and he quit. <laughs> Because yes. he felt like everything was going a bit uh, crazy. If you've seen the show, the Netflix movie, The Social Dilemma, which yes. is about all, he's one of the talking heads in that movie. <clears throat> excuse me, talking about, I've been talking for three hours. I've just come off the radio. So excuse ah, my yes. little hoarse throat. Of course. This is my fourth hour of broadcasting. Uh, and Tristan is one of the people who's ringing the alarm bells saying, uh, there are no guardrails on this thing. We don't know. We don't even know what it's doing. Like, we know that it's a large language model, which means that it's putting words together that make sense, that, you know, that seem to it to make sense on the basis of the fact that it's just consumed all of the uh, data in the universe. By the way, did you know, Mike Kaplan, yes. that these chat GPT things, they've been, what do you reckon they've been trained on? Like, you know, when, what, what are they feeding these things to give them their uh, information? Oh, I... I don't know the answer to that. So it's, uh, it's just literature, right? It's just stuff from the web. It's books that have been scanned. Mm -hmm. It's everything that's on, on the internet. Um, what fraction of uh, the things that have been written in the history of the known universe do you think ChatGPT has read so far? Uh, three is my guess. It's almost everything. But that's much more than three. <laughs> so 
it hasn't read all the gibberish nonsense that we're writing on on like community chat boards and Reddit. But basically, everything that's ever been published and that has ever been scanned, which is pretty much everything that hasn't been physically destroyed, wow. uh, ChatGPT knows. And um, that I was talking to an AI expert just last night, actually, who was saying that within three years there'll be nothing left to teach these machines because they will have consumed all written information in existence. Uh, but what if I write something after that? Then they'll need a little time to read that. They, they will need a little time. Little is yes. probably the operative word. If you write it on uh, any kind of networked computer in, for example, uh, a Google Doc or some such, then it will read it. Uh, that is that is mind-boggling. It, it is, is fascinating. Yes. And so then, and then Tristan says, so what we're basically doing is all these things that they're putting together words, right, based on everything that's ever been written and making inferences about what the next most reasonable thing to say is and therefore they're uh, exhibiting characteristics that appear to be sentient to which I say, well, what else are we doing right now, you and I, except using our databases of knowledge in our brains to try to sift through and figure out what the next words that we should say that sound the most reasonable are? That's a good question, Josh. I mean, you're a philosopher and a semiotician. I mean, a semantician. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, here's the thing: is I truly, I only have this experience. I mean, I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of ones over here. Uh, a lot, a lot of moments going on. At least, at least one. But uh, so I don't know what it's like to be the computer. But uh, I do know that my friend Gus who is also a good, he's got a good philosophy brain. I trust him. I love him. He's a practicing Buddhist as well. And he has been engaging with ChatGPT, uh, not furiously, but uh, definitely curiously. And I, he, sent, he sends me every once in a while a, an interaction that he's had with it. And it always swears up and down that it is not conscious. And I, what, like Maya Angelou said, when people, you know, tell you who they are, believe them, I like to adapt that and say, when non-people tell you who they are, believe them as well. Yes. I mean, does it need to be conscious, though? So the, I mean, my point about, the, about putting words in front of each other that make sense is not to say that because a computer can do it the way we can, it needs to, the lights need to be on inside the computer. Mm -hmm. It's just to say that I think we're setting ourselves an unreasonably high bar for what constitutes uh, sort of functional sentience or consciousness, at least. Mm. If we say that it needs to be coming up with, like we're adding a sprinkle of pixie dust, which we don't with each other, put it that way. That's true. Yeah. I mean, in in the Buddhist paradigm, as I've been learning about recently, like there is no, uh, for the most part, uh, uh, there's no soul, there's no spirit, uh, there's no God. There is, you know, simply like, you know, what seem what we might take as ourselves, you know, there's there's no self like that's one of their biggest things. Like there's no, you know, enduring, permanent uh, intrinsic thing that anyone can point to and be like that that's me this is me that that this one's me always uh you know do you know the thing of uh the same person cannot step into the same river twice yeah but explain what that means uh essentially you know we can certainly easily look at a river and note that if you're like okay that's the river that and that's the water that's passing by right now so, but the water that's passing by right now is not the water that was passing by a moment ago, and it's not the water that's going to be passing by a moment from now. So, in what sense is it at and at some point go back far enough or go forward far enough, and the river won't be there? So, there wasn't a river, there is a river, there won't be a river. And also, isn't the, the point that the river, a river is water moving, so it looks like it's a thing, but it's actually a whole new oh, yeah. batch of water? It is aggregates, yeah. It is yeah. aggregates of things, as are we. We are made of aggregates, and they create uh, the appearance, the semblance of uh, a self that is very, I mean, functionally, practically, like, valuable to be like, you're Josh, I'm Mike. That has meaning conventionally. Uh, but beyond that, you know, uh, 
well, what is any? We're, you know, it's not the same molecules from moment to moment. It's not the same, uh, you know, atoms and such. It's not this. It, everything is constantly shifting. So we are essentially, you know, rivers walking into new rivers every moment of our lives. What so, impact? Like, yeah. what? What are the consequences of that for your life? Um, sometimes. Here's, the, here's a practical aspect of it. Uh, maybe this is zooming in or out too far at once, but my understanding is that uh, a lot of suffering, a lot of discontent uh, arises in the discrepancy between what is and what we expect to be or what we think should be or what was even, you know? Like, hey, it was like this, and now it's not like this, be it, you know, Ghostbusters used to be all male or uh, like I used to be young. You know, I think we as human beings and as just beings in this world as part of this world, uh, we're pattern seekers. We we're categorizers. We like thing. We like to find things that are the same day after day, but on, you know, get granular enough and it's not so. And so for me, I feel like this uh, this philosophy or this. Uh, this theory, this uh, manifestation of Buddhist wisdom is helpful to me in continually reminding me uh, not to get hooked or hung up or, you know, uh, not to get too stuck on things being a certain way because they, in some ways, quite literally are never the same from moment to moment. And so it it's helpful for me when I whenever I'm upset, whenever I'm disappointed, whenever I'm frustrated, uh, I'll give you various other synonyms if you wish. Um, <laughs> that I'm like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> that the past, mm, the mm. thing, the different. Like yeah, it's it's all like trying to grab sand with sand or water yeah. with water. Like so, it's there's a Zen koan I believe that's. Uh, let go or be dragged, you know? Well, that's good. That's and good. so I feel that we're very frequently hanging, holding on to things that, here's a, a thing I love. Uh, I had this book of Aesop's fables as a child, and mm. I don't know if this is an Aesop's fable, but it was in the book uh, about a boy who stuck his hand into a filbert container. Let's say like a cookie what? jar, you know? Okay. Uh, a filbert is a kind of a nut that okay. at the time of the writing of this was the equivalent of a cookie, a, a sweet treat, the filbert. Boy reaches in, grabs a handful of filberts, tries to pull his hand out. It's like a vase with a thin neck, and he can't get it out unless he releases some of the filberts, which he's unwilling to do. Uh, you can, if you released a bunch, you could take out a couple, you could take out one at a time, but you can't get your whole fist full of filberts out of there. And I feel like frequently, uh, we, I'll speak for myself, I am sometimes holding on to you know, parts of my identity, literal belongings that I have in my home, or just all kinds of things that would better serve me if I let them go. That's nice. It's coming across. This is coming across the transom again. I'm going to have to look up transom uh, yeah. before we're done. A filbert. Uh, filbert is a cultivated hazel tree that bears edible oval nuts and also mm. the nut of the filbert tree. Uh, the, uh, the etymology is that it comes from uh, Middle English, filbert, from uh, Anglo-Norman French. Filbert, from, meaning uh, noix de filbert, so named because it, is, it ripens around the 20th of August, which is the feast day of Saint-Philibert. So they, it ripened on the feast day of Saint-Philibert, so they called it a filbert, uh, hence a filbert hazelnut. I like it a lot. Uh, But it doesn't sound like a very delicious treat. Not as delicious as a cookie. uh, No, though, I mean, hazelnut uh, is in Nutella, right? That's, uh, I I understand it's maybe not doing the full heavy lifting. It's not carrying the heavy lifting in the Nutella. I believe the sugar and chocolate is uh, is contributing there. Uh, Something you said, Mike, that I thought uh, that uh, stoked my, uh, that piqued my interest was um, that we are identity Machines or something like that. I think yes. you said, and and it reminded me that we're not just identity machines, but in addition to all that you say that is very wise about our possessions and our being too uh, obsessed with 
things and us and ourselves, we are also meaning-making machines, which is an insight that I sort of got from uh, studying secular Buddhism and indeed doing ayahuasca, which you kindly introduced me to, which I want to get to in just a second anyway Mm. and see if you're still doing it. But the... The and also I should give a shout out to Landmark. You know the Landmark Forum and like Landmark Education. Have yes. you heard of this outfit? You know they do. Uh, they used to be Est in the sixties, a kind of San Franciscan hippie mm. thing, and now it's like this personal development company. But it's basically sort of secular Buddhism and Stoicism repackaged into a modern form. Very useful for many people. Um, and uh, the, the basic insight being that we our brains have just evolved to spend a lot of time whirring away, uh, regretting the past and worrying about the future. And we spend very little time, this is channeling Eckhart Tolle here as well, uh, honourable mm-hmm. mention, spend very little time just existing in the actual present. So the present never actually exists. So we never really actually live our lives because we're always just ruminating on the way that things should have gone and didn't and the way that things might have might go and won't. <laughs> you know what I mean? I 100% know what you mean. All right. How are you still doing, Ayahuasca? Uh, great question. But first, let me just put a button on this. And so the special is on Drybar. <laughs> and uh, it's called Live from the Universe. And uh-huh. uh, you can, if you want, use the promo code Mike Kaplan, spelled the way that I spell it, on their website. Get a free month. Watch it and whatever you like. And also, I did mention briefly yes. that... I have this other album that came out widely this year that is called Live In Between Albums. And it is, in some ways, the the very flip side of the concerns that you had about the Dry Bar special. Uh, I won't say that it is full of filth, but there was nobody telling me that uh, it mm. needed to be uh, of a certain... Like, that I, could, I said what I wanted to say, no This is all the what. smut. This is the Fuck the Mormons <laughs> special. Uh, in, in fact, it's not. It, it, there's actually, it's actually pretty clean as well. But okay. uh, it is uh, available pretty much all of the streaming places, and uh, it is completely different than any other album. If you've heard all of my albums except for Live In Between Albums, then you will be pleasantly surprised that Live In Between Albums shares no jokes in common with <laughs> any of the other albums. Well, I'm looking forward to both of those as much as I'm looking forward to a fresh jar of Philbert's <laughs> later on today, Mike. And perhaps the sweet, sweet answer to your question... Uh, the answer in some ways is, uh, I mean, yes, I am still doing ayahuasca with less regularity of late. Like, I think there was a time in, I think I started almost a decade ago, probably 2014 was my first time doing it. And it was very meaningful in ways that encouraged me to do it many times. Uh, probably, I I don't know at what point I'll stop saying this, but I I bet that in the past 10 years I've done it a high double-digit number of times. And at some point, it might be a triple-digit. It, it might be a triple-digit now. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, I feel like in, in the past 10 years, there were definitely years where I did it uh, 10 times, but probably, I think we're not there yet. But probably in the next decade, if I continue, but one never knows. Um, I think that in the past year, I've, I did it twice. That's uh, not nearly as many as high triple digits. Yes, that's high correct. High double digits, not yes. high triple digits. You haven't done no, it a no. thousand times. That's correct. I absolutely, uh, I would say the, the triple digit number that is closest to the amount that I would estimate I've done it is 100. Right. It could be Which could is be the 60. lowest yeah. of all oh, yeah. triple digit numbers. That's true. Yeah. In fact, my son told me the other day that uh, the only number that has three numbers in it is 100. Wow. Well, so I I slapped him. I mean, I said that's not true. I bet you didn't. Goddamn lie, and you know it. All of that, but I will say that here's my new listing on trusted sources: is Baratunde Smithsonian your son? (laughs) Excellent. Don't follow him on uh, on on uh, what do you call it? It's not numerology. Uh, What do you call the study of numbers? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Math? Numeri- <laughs> I guess math would be a good term for it, wouldn't it? Uh, and what is it about the ayahuasca that it does to you that you found compelling? 
Sure. Thank you for asking. I mean, one, the first experience that I had, the first two experiences I had with it were beautiful, meaningful, like love fests in a way that I felt like I was purely made of love. And, you know, it is... It is a psychedelic. It is, as some call, an entheogen, which I believe is the definition would be like a psychedelic, but for spiritual purposes. Um, it it really like opened my eyes to things. There there are two two major categories of the insights that it has offered me and friends that have done it that I've had these discussions with. Uh, a woman that I was seeing at the time. Uh, described sort of we divided into life coaching and death coaching and so some of it is has like I think the functionality of meditation of therapy of you know any any number of uh, you know advice columns like any any ways that if you're trying to improve your life or seek answers or meaning as we are meaning makers uh, I think that there are there are practical elements to it, and then there are I would say before I did ayahuasca, I I was much more uh, I would I would here here's a joke that I tell now yeah uh, I say I used to say that I was an atheist, and now I'm like why do we have to talk about it because I brought it up fair enough <laughs> so and it really depends uh, again on your definitions like. God has certainly a lot of, uh, the term has a lot of connotations and baggage and depending how you were raised and what God or gods you're talking about or what meaning, what religion, what path. Uh, but I have, there's a, a friend of mine who's a rabbi and who also, I, I believe teaches Buddhist meditation. Uh, he once sure. said to me on my podcast, he said, uh, God does not exist. God is existence. And I like that. I yeah. like because- yeah. That's I what mean, I have to say to that. I have a Larry <laughs> David uh, shrug yeah. towards that one. I, uh, uh, and because what also, does it mean? Doesn't it mean? Well, this is always this gets slippery though. You know, it's like uh, if you want to if you want to say that if you want to be a rabbi and you want to devote your life to God, uh, stop being so slippery. Just say he exists. Because if God is existence, well, that's great. But then we're just playing a word game, aren't we? Well. I think that we're not just playing a word game. I think that the word game that he that you are uh, assessing his words to be a part of is aiming to get at something akin to the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao. That there is there are truths that literally words cannot describe, and that that is that God is a word just like that as well. And that to say God exists, here's another uh, relevant tidbit that I like in listening to Alan Watts, who I really enjoy. Alan Watts once uh, described, I don't know if it was Suzuki Roshi specifically, a particular, a Buddhist teacher uh, that may have been Suzuki Roshi uh, once was asked, do you believe in God? And he said, if you do, I don't. And if you don't, I do. And, I think that there is valuable, meaningful wisdom in that that ties back to the very discussion that I feel like you were into earlier when we were talking about that we are rivers, that we are shifting, that we are changing, and that there is no, we cannot get one answer to hold on to because, you know, it's sort of like if I asked you, are you tall compared to what? Compared to a child, compared to a giant. The answer is different. Can I say compared to a child? Yes, because that way I'll come out a, a taller than yes. if I were compared to a giant. In which case, I would feel small and inadequate in this vast, empty cosmos of ours. Uh, this vast, Absolutely. godless, godless, <laughs> inky blackness in and... which we find ourselves. My, I, I agree with all of that. I guess my the reason I had such a, a knee jerk, uh, yeah. violent and visceral uh, <laughs> reaction uh, and had to restrain myself from throwing furniture is that people who devote themselves to the pursuit of a particular dogma, a particular religious creed that has certain fact claims about history, about whether or not the Red Sea parted and whether or not you're supposed to say particular holy words in some strange tongue over something or other to make something happen uh, to the universe and whether or not the creator of the universe intervenes in uh, magical ways in our lives. 
people who devote themselves to that, I just feel like, well, if you're going to do all that, then at least have the decency to believe it. You know, don't come at me with a hodgepodge of, uh, of kind of furry, fluffy, uh, marshmallow, cool whip nonsense at me. Uh, just say the Yahweh exists and he created the universe and it's here for us. Uh, Otherwise, don't be a rabbi. Well, I think that's the thing is, I think, uh, Josh, are you a Jewish person? Yeah, I'm of, I'm of Jewish ancestry, yes. Uh, so I, feel I was bar like, mitzvahed as well. Sure, So I got sure. that going for me. Absolutely. And I feel like, do you know this thing? There's a, a joke of mine that I've been working on recently that I won't tell, but there is a kinship in the joke to this old chestnut or filbert, if you will, um, <laughs> that the idea that Jews might say, for any Jewish person that is more religious than you, they are a fanatic. And for any religious person who is less Jewish than you, they are not even Jewish. Yes. And but like, that's true that of is, all religions, right? I mean, that's true absolutely. of Christians. That's certainly true of your Muslims who seem to get very hot under the collar, many of them, when their colleagues are insufficiently uh, doctrinal. Well, well, let me bring us back to Buddhism for a moment, which some might say is not even a religion. Uh, and I might be among them. Mm. And, but there is uh, two things from Buddhism that I will offer from the aforementioned Suzuki Roshi, which uh, I believe given name Shunryu Suzuki. He has oh. many quotes I love. I got a book of his quotes recently, the first of which that I, I always paraphrase and I want to get it exactly right. But he says, you are all, each of you is uh, perfect exactly as you are and you could stand some improvement. That's one uh, <laughs> that I really love. And number two, uh, let's see, I'll get to a tree falls in the forest momentarily and his response to it. But the second thing is that he says uh, a thing about to non-Buddhists, there are Buddhists and non-Buddhists, but to Buddhists, all are Buddhists, even bugs. And so I think that in that framing, well, at least I mean, to a, him. That's a bit arrogant, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's a bit, that's like, I mean, isn't that a bit like the Christian evangelical who, like I was at a, uh, I was sitting at a poker, I was sitting at a blackjack table, actually. It wasn't poker. It was a blackjack table in Las Vegas. Have you heard of Las Vegas? Lovely town. I have heard of it. I was sitting there and uh, and uh, I was playing uh, some, uh, some of the old blackjack and uh, I jokingly said to my friend, God damn you. And the... Uh, dealer, she glared at me and she said, we don't take the Lord's name in vain at this table, hmm. young man. Uh, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, where I come from, it's not a, it's, that's not considered offensive. And uh, she looks at me and she goes, it doesn't matter where you're from, our Lord is everywhere. And I thought, well, uh, actually, it sort of does obviously matter where you're from, because if I was in India, then I wouldn't care about your Lord. Your Lord is parochial and belongs to you, and that's all very well. You're allowed to believe in him, her, it, but uh, don't impose your uh, dogma on everybody else. Uh, so where does the Buddhist get off uh, claiming a beetle? Well, uh, I'll answer. I think that, number one, I hear you, and I'm on y in this story. I'm on your side. Uh, and also, I'm on all sides. But I would say, I would say that... the blackjack dealer was a Buddhist as well, according to, <laughs> to the Buddhist. Well, this is all to say uh, a couple things. Number one, I think that what that blackjack dealer was saying, like that was being prescriptivist in a way that is unkind and, I think, uh, misguided. And I think that this Buddhist teacher who said that the Buddhist sees everyone as Buddhists, that is not prescriptive. They're not going around telling anyone that they have to do anything differently. They're not even saying, look, I, I think if he said that and you heard him and was like, hey, I, don't, I have an issue with that, then he would be like, oh, yeah, never mind. Forget about it. <laughs> like, 100%, he would react in the moment uh, as such. As I mean, maybe I'm projecting. I'm like, yeah, maybe. don't even worry about it. But this is all hmm. to say, uh, in the same book, uh, of people's remembrances of things that uh, Suzuki Roshi said. Somebody, a, a student once went to him and said, okay, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? And do you know what Suzuki Roshi's answer was? What? No. It, it doesn't matter. And so I really think that the question of the exact definition of seemingly potentially undefinable 
things and concepts like God, like those are like ultimately, I mean, fun to talk about, fun for linguistics, fun for philosophy, uh, fun for uh, discussions and playing around, but also like the ultimate truth, if there is an ultimate truth in Buddhism or in most religions is like, you know, kindness, love, compassion. Mm. Uh, those are the things like to... And recruiting I, all the Beatles into their faith. I don't uh, think that oh, they have to be recruited. And this is just for uh, for our paid subscribers now because uh, the, the rest of uh, people, I know that you have to go and do some stand-up comedy and yes. uh, the rest of our, uh, our listeners have to have to go so thank you mike kaplan for being on the show to hear the rest of this conversation go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing if it was worth listening to this much of don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for uncomfortable conversations with the substack.